Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're doing well. Now, if you fancy a fascinating story of twists and turns to make a dream come true, all with a side of a big slice of cake, well, let me introduce you to Gary Derham. Gary Derham owns the Bristol Loaf Bakery, which has places all over the city. He employs more than 100 staff. It's won national awards, and they even have a place in one of our biggest music venues in the southwest, the Bristol Beacon. When they opened their flagship store, which is so much more than a bakery, they had queues out the door for days. But this is a story of how next chapters lead to the right chapter. Gary started off with a love of architecture and art at school, but working in a restaurant took him to bars and then his own nightclub before going back to bars and then finally finding a way to combine all his loves. Gary says sometimes we all need a lesson in how not to do it to be able to get it right. He is truthful and open about what has gone well and what hasn't. He's dedicated, hardworking and not afraid of carrying on when everything is going wrong. And with his team of bakers today, he sees the importance and effect of people doing what they love to do. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Gary Derham. So Gary Derham, welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. I am absolutely delighted to have you with me. Thank you for sparing the time. Oh, no worries. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oh, fabulous. Gary, I knew your story would be good, but you sent me some notes beforehand and your story, I think, is is amazing. So we're going to just get, get straight into it. And we start, as we always do, with the prologue. Now, you grew up in Chard. That's a, for people who don't know, that's in Somerset. It's a smallish kind of place, isn't it? Um, and fairly rural. Yeah, yeah, really quite rural. Just, um, it's just one of those sort of, you know, very Middle England sort of, you know, it's, it's just one of those places that is. <laughs> There's not any really big distinguishing features about it. It's just, you know, a collection of people who happened to live there. Um, yeah, it just was. It sounds like you had quite the childhood because, so you were, I mean, this is brilliant. You were, uh, your mum had seven children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we weren't Catholic or anything. It just seems, she just seemed to really love babies, um, which is <laughs> what she liked doing. Uh, she was like a career carer, really. Yeah. Yeah, so you had, she had seven children. There were three different dads. Your dad had another four children after your brother and you. So you had this sort of gigantic world, really. But then also, um, then you spent quite a lot of time, your stepdad grew up on a local dairy farm. And you say you, you remember lots of your, your childhood memories, like roaming around, being out and about in local fields. And it sounds like quite a, like an open, free childhood yeah definitely as i think again sort of a lot of the 80s especially rural childhoods were quite like that because it wasn't like living in a modern world now where your children sort of spend as much time online and they don't i don't know it just seemed outside world seems a lot more dangerous now or uh, parents in particular feel a lot more sort of overly protective of their children but sort of back then yeah like after school you sort of congregate with your friends out on the local green or you know you go door to door knocking and see if, you know, Neil or Claire or Rachel can come out and everyone just collects out on the streets and you just roam more than anything else, just sort of like free range children. It felt actually really nice. Like I, I remember it quite fondly with mostly about freedom. And so most of my overriding memories are of 
in 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 a gang of other children sort of exploring things or building dens or rope swings or bows and arrows or probably being a bit naughtier than that but still it was yeah like a childhood of freedom yeah sounds amazing and at school you said you you kind of it was quite a dangerous realization that you were you were you were, you were bright but you realized that you, sometimes you didn't necessarily have to try as hard as you you could have done perhaps gary yeah i think i might realize this a little bit more in later life sort of looking back but um it, it, it was I, I don't think i was like a very a people pleaser as a child but sort of really wanted to get the teacher's sort of affection by doing really really well and i, I didn't find the actual work particularly hard i think i got it quite quickly um and i just learned probably quite too early that i didn't have to try quite so much and still i would get sort of near the top of the class and i think as, as i grew up and you know being a bit brighter probably didn't <laughs> amount for that much but you know what i mean it's like it was yeah probably not a good thing for me to be bright because it sort of maybe built a bit of arrogance in me um well, I'm not sure because what we're going to go on to talk about, I think, but it goes to show, doesn't it? Because we talk about this a lot that at school, sometimes it's sometimes even as well, just the school system. If you didn't like being after, especially having such a, a free childhood and going into quite a confined school, sometimes it's just just because you don't, you know, get the top or well, you were getting great marks. But just because you didn't feel like working hard there doesn't mean to say you didn't want to work hard later on in life. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was more. I, I worked hard at things that I found really interesting. So like at school, I, I I really liked maths and I really liked art in particular. So, and so I would happily, you know, I would happily apply myself or sort of get lost in, in those subjects. But then if something didn't really grab my attention, I'd probably just, I, you know, I just did it off, offhand quickly just to get it out of the way so I don't have to get bogged about homework or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I'm sure lots of people listening to this with their teenagers can relate to uh, them going through their homework. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like my, my oldest daughter is 11 now and I can see the same traits almost. I'm right. just like, no, you really do have to try. And she's like, why? Why do I? I'm top of my class. It's like, no, no, no. It's when you get a little bit older, it, you know, you really do need to learn these lessons of how to, how to actually cram and how to actually go along a little bit. And you really do need to. Like you're not a genius. You really do need to probably knuckle down a little bit more than you're doing at the moment. Well, you did very well. So, so you then you did uh, you went sort of down the creative route. So you did a BA uh, at university in fine art. You started an MA in art history, but you didn't finish that. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I think it was more at the time I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, and it seemed like because I'd gone down the creative route uh I, I i applied for a physics degree as well wow. but um and i did get accepted into manchester university but i think at that time i really i lost interest in it and so i didn't i didn't barely bother for my a levels um for that but i was more interested in the art on that sense so i went and did the art degree instead um and i just didn't really know what else to do like what i was going to be when i grow up that sort of question so it popped into my mind that I might want to be a lecturer uh, in art or art history or something along those lines and maybe paint or do something on in my spare time. Um, I was just trying on hats and costumes at that point. You thought maybe as well about being an architect? Yeah, that was probably a lot earlier, again, just because it, it sort of mixes the creative element and it mixes the sort of my, I, I do really like maths and numbers and quite good at them. But it was sort of, I think I was just answering questions when people sort of ask you, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, especially at that age, you pick out sensible sounding um, 
sensible sounding things almost. Um, so yeah, I think architecture, like even now, weirdly, as I'm, I'm a bit older and I've been involved in sort of designs of things, I'm probably a lot more interested in it now than I was. And it's sort of like that inkling when I was much, much, much younger, it sort of, it, it sparks a lot more of an interest and a passion now. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I and mean, this is what we'll, we'll go on to talk about, but these seeds are sown, aren't they? You don't realise at the time. And you're so young as well. I think teenagers are so young, but you don't really know. Um, but there's obviously all these interests. So so something then, that, but while you were at university, you then, uh, you were taught to chef at uni, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I come from a uh, really poor background, effectively. So there was, I had to work all the way through university so um yeah i think i started off in in bars like every student does and then graduated to waiting and then i, I got a job in this one particular restaurant um called number seven um in cheltenham where uh yeah i was sort of taken under a wing by a particular it was the owner it was like a really interesting little restaurant really like it was fantastic the food was amazing uh and it was owned by this iranian architect his wife and his ex-art dealer, sort of um, South Korean um, art dealer who used to be an art dealer in Singapore, which was his wife's sister. And that was effectively the nuclear group of this whole restaurant and they worked all the time. Um, they had so much sort of control and interest in all the different foods and the different culture clashes. Um, there was only like, apart from those three, there was just a couple of waiters and then myself in the kitchen with them. Um, so it was like being almost sort of like invited into like another little nuclear family, but of food. Um, it was, yeah, an amazing little place, actually. Uh, they taught me loads. And amazing with it there that you loved art and you loved architecture so the, and, and restaurant and food. So suddenly all your loves were in one place. Yeah, yeah, it did feel a little bit like that. I think at the time, again, it sort of, and this is what I sort of learned with cooking, especially there. Because, um, you know, I started off KPing like everybody does. And so washing dishes for ages and then all you're allowed on the cold section to make salads or something and you sort of slowly get taught all the different sections and all the different like you know there's no way you'd be allowed anywhere near the grill for two years you know what i mean but yeah it was just like it's the sort of instant creative gratification with cooking that you're you know if you're doing a painting or you're writing a book or something and it's a very very long gestation period but whereas with cooking obviously you have to plan a dish and make a lot of but you're still making something in the moment which you can then go and see being consumed and enjoyed in front of you. And it's something that's really appealed to me, like the instant gratification of your creative endeavours. Um, and so, you know, it's the same now, like if you've got people around your house for a dinner party, sit sat and just enjoy creating a moment or an atmosphere or, you know, putting the right music on or pouring the right wine or sparking the right conversation at the right time. And it's still that sort of, it's, it's, it's creative. You're just creating an experience or or something that mm. I, I see it as a positive thing in mm. a positive force Sorry, I'm doing much here. <laughs> no, not at all. Especially if you're good at cooking. And for somebody like me, I'm okay. I'm not great. So I get really stressed. So it's lovely to hear somebody that um, enjoys it so much to do, to do that. So you then, you loved it so much that you left your university and then you really went into that world, didn't you? You went, yeah. you started working in, in the catering and bar industry. Yeah, well, it was more... Again, it's like I finished my degree, I started doing the MA, but sort of part-time. But I think it was just because I didn't really know what else to do. So it's like, okay, I've done my degree, I did all right. Oh, I sort of knew from being, like after you do your A-levels, you have to do a foundation, then you do your three-year course. It's like, so you've been in that world for quite a long time. And I sort of knew that I 
that wasn't really for me it's like the people who i think will make it as artists they were so dedicated like every moment they weren't in in the studio they were in the library or they were in like you know they were talking about it all the time and they i could see they were that they were just so dedicated to become like a living artist you just have to have a completely different mindset to what i had and i knew even though i really liked it and was i want to be creative it wasn't i didn't have the same passion as they had or the same drive to do it like i used to spend my time in a restaurant and working and probably in bars and then i used to go to the studio and knock out a few paintings to be way too quick and they were quite good because i was quite good but they weren't it wasn't that real passion and dedication that you need to make it in life almost or in that field so i sort of knew by then i i, I won't make it as an artist because I, I, I don't care enough um so yeah so after uni i was just sort of <laughs> it's like what do i do you know and then i went back home for a little while but obviously you don't want to get go back to your small little rural town so yeah i came to bristol just the idea of doing something and doing my ma so maybe still trying to do something in academia or trying to do something uh but yeah sort of went into i was working for bristol museum initially in the daytimes um because it seemed something cultural and you know it's just like oh well i did something cultural i will get a cultural job but um and then i was working in a bar at night time um in a cocktail bar really so again and the, the cocktail bar seemed more fun and creative and you know more towards where my heart was than the sort of museum job and did you when you were in the in the kitchen in cheltenham and then when you were doing the bar work did you start to feel more that this was your passion i think so yeah um i don't know if it's something that i felt afterwards like i've intellectualized it a little bit but it was more it just felt like more around my kind of people like you know it's quite it's quite an intense environment like you if you're in a kitchen and the chefs are coming in it's like da, 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 da. or even if you're behind a bar and you're serving four deep in a really really busy bar or you're behind a cocktail bar and you're you know really making amazing cocktails it's still there's an intensity to what you're doing and it's quite it's quite a buzz mm. like you get a little bit like oh okay ooh, and you get sort of the adrenaline rushes and it's sort of and the people you're working alongside they're you have a kinship with them because they're all in the same boat as you and it's sort of it felt a bit more i think it was my passion but i didn't really know it at the time mm. at the time it was more just like well i'm doing this because you know i don't know what else to do mm. um and then you get better at what you do yeah. <laughs> or well, i don't know um yeah, well you really did i mean but then you i mean you were made general manager of the harborside bar in bristol which is a big bar at 24 yeah. i say that was that was pretty a big thing wasn't it yeah well that was actually weirdly it was in the hub it was actually the same place as number one harborside that i came to be um one of the directors of later but it was actually in the same building but before it was number one harborside so oh, okay. it was i can't remember the name of it now oh, river bar uh, river. so it was like a cocktail bar in exactly the same place um and i'd been working in a in a place called bar free which was like a members only bit of a posh uh cocktail bar with like a big disco on the side which was quite cool mm. um so yes yeah, so I, I got a job there just sort of cocktail bartending and then sort of i don't know i got promoted quite quickly to sort of assistant manager and then literally a month later got sort of appointed general manager so um yeah i sort of quite quickly i don't know again this might be my overconfidence sort of 
you, you go into a place and then you sort of look around and you say almost devil's advocate in your mind and like, oh what what could be better here or and so I sort of all, always had a a look to improve what wherever I am or whatever I'm doing or sort of seeing how other people are doing it mm. and I, I can almost sort of I, I start to sort of assess the, all the processes or how do we do this or you, you learn from people and then you're like okay well how do we make it better and, da, 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 da. and so I started doing that and I was probably a really annoying little um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I don't know if I would have liked me <laughs> back like to have employed a me have you know what I mean to like a, a, a 24 year old little know-it-all well um, you obviously yeah. had a potential you had potential Gary and and then though you left and you opened a nightclub with your brother at the age of 25 yeah yeah that seems a bit <laughs> again it just seemed like a it was the guys who owned the river bar they had a they also owned loads of businesses around etc etc uh, and they had this one unit which was down in Taunton, which was, you know, really near to my hometown. Um, and it was a, a place, it was like this big cavernous basement and along the main strip with like another bar upstairs. And it was somewhere I used to go to sort of when I was like, you know, probably before 18, obviously. <laughs> but when I was young, because they used to have actually really good live music there all the time. And so I remembered it as something completely different. And then... Uh, speaking to the guys who who I was working with, and they didn't quite know, like they they got this place and they put something in and it didn't quite work, and they were sort of not quite knowing what to do with it. So, me being you know the arrogance of youth, um, was like, oh, <laughs> I'll have it. I you know, and I sort of wildly pitched some sort of idea that I would because you know I'd been running a bar in Bristol for all a whole year now and obviously I know everything about everything. <laughs> um so but I managed to convince them a sensible sounding business plan that we all take it and because I've been working in Bristol as well I've met quite a lot of music promoters and a lot of you know more like Bristol sort of music and so in my mind's eye we could take sort of Bristol based music so you know like drum and bass and uh, like a lot of different live hip-hop and some really good techno nights and things which were people things that i liked and i'd known and i've i'd been to their nights and i'd met the promoters and i could take it to taunton and they'd be like oh, that'd be great taunton would love this because it's got a they had an art college uh somerset colleges of art and technology so in my mind's eye i was like great yep well i can take this template from the bristol night scene like you know Beckler used to have and there was bar called the native that used to do it really really well in bristol and then i could transport it to taunton and you know what could possibly go wrong um so we sort of we yeah we convinced the owners that it would be great if we took it on and just sort of managed to beg borrow and steal and you know do loads of work ourselves and paint things i got this big graffiti artist to do loads of these amazing like big stencil artists it was just before black just sounds fancy was becoming like a thing and like one of his peers like to do these amazing they're still really cool actually wish i still had them i've got no idea where they went <laughs> but these great big paintings sort of going all the way up the stairways and it was like it was cool it was really cool mm. um and like i still stand by my product like it was what we did down there was great um and so we had one i got a we had tuesday night i think we had like a student live music night and there was like some really really good live music on and then Oh, I can't remember them now. Wednesday night there was like another sort of like a bit more of a jazz night, and then Thursday night there was 
all the way and then like we had these monthly sort of rotating nights which were a bit more interesting less still sort of dance music sort of dub nights we had like some live drum and bass nights going on but it was like it was really cool but um and i was and this is where my complete inexperience and just trying to pretend like i knew what i was doing sort of came in but mm-hmm. we were sort of paying the promoters way too much to come and put on these nights not taking enough of the door ourselves and also like just the business side of it we were just like oh you know it was like it was really really busy when it was but then it, sometimes it wasn't you know it was like you know paying of staff out of pills and like <laughs> it was like i was a 25 year old with my own nightclub you know that was yeah. pretty much it yeah um and my brother was yeah he wasn't from this world like and so he I don't think he actually did very much. <laughs> I probably didn't see him really do anything at all. He sort of helped me sort of raise some of the finances and did some of the work. But um, yeah, no, they were mostly sort of my ideas. And unfortunately, it was, well, it was my overconfidence, let's say. Um, so yeah, it just got, we, we run it for about a year, but we sort of slipped into quite bad arrears with, you know, some paying of breweries and paying of landlords and etc etc because really we were just we were just running at this complete like oh we'll have this and we'll put on you know there was one night we turfed the whole place it was um, a may day weekend and we decided we'll do turn this 200 300 capacity club into like a pop-up festival so we literally turfed the whole thing with lots of ground setting around put up tents and had bottles of cider hidden in these amazing people come and play but like you know, there was a lot of effort, and it was amazing, but we made no money off of it. Oh, what a <laughs> but shame. it was brilliant. Yeah, it sounds brilliant. I would have loved it. Oh, it sounds amazing. So, but, I mean, what a, what a thing, though, to experience having your own nightclub. You did say, you know, you did have a lot, lot of fun that year. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, but I think by the time it was sort of forcefully taken off of us, uh, the landlords came and stepped back in, and, you know, we consolidated some of the debts. Uh we were definitely, like, it started off like, wow, look what we can do, and oh, this is great. And then, you know, when the reality starts to bite, and then you're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul, and sort of, you're being snowballed a little bit. Mm. Um, that was definitely the, the right time. Uh, weirdly, it got forcefully taken back from us. I was at Glastonbury Festival mm. on the time, and then they, they came, like, the, the people, the landlords sort of, sent some people in to take the place back from us um, on the Sunday night whilst I was at Glastonbury Festival so I had to come back from Glastonbury Festival and then sit down for a very a a meeting with them to sort of work out selling back our fixtures and fittings and bits and bobs to try and not bankrupt us Uh, yeah after you know five days in the field in Glastonbury Festival so that was a that was tough yeah yeah, perseverance (laughs) I did quite well at that meeting but it was yeah I think you what I mean what an experience though. I remember and sorry to, to but I've just got to tell you this. I grew up near Slough of all places and we used to go to this amazing place called Harry's, which I thought okay. was the best place in the world. And essentially it was just a room above a kebab hut and they played loud music and we danced on tables. And I remember and I just used to think this is the best place in the entire world. And what must it be like to own something like that? In fact, I the owner once said to me, you know, you can buy it off me. I only had five pounds. But it's one of those things, isn't it, that you always dream to have that place that everyone loves coming to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was actually quite weird. I was at a dinner party with um, some of my partner's friends uh, three weeks ago. They they come from London and one of the one of the guys um, 
my partner's friend's partner is actually from Taunton. And we were like, oh, talking about Taunton. And then I sort of casually mentioned Gaffy Man. But he was like, what? Oh, and he, and he was like, so there was like, apparently, apparently in his group of friends, there was like the last night of Gaffy Mamba is like legendary in the <laughs> folklore of their group of friends because literally we were getting taken over effectively. So the bar manager at the time just literally just let everybody go behind a bar, put their heads underneath the taps and dance on tables. And it was just like, you know, in their in their peer group and their age folklore of Taunton, it was like the thing they still talk about now. Amazing. Years later. <laughs> well, look, what a so, legacy. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, what a legacy. And obviously you learned so much, which you then have applied later. So so after that, then you went, you, can, you, went, you came back to Bristol and you worked as a general manager in gastropubs that I know but say the, the Star and Dove, the Spotted Cow, um, so you sort of went back to back, back to that, but then you had your daughter, and you realised that this perhaps wasn't quite the life that you wanted becoming a dad. Yeah, yeah, I think it was sort of it was mostly the spotted cow. So I was there for three years, sort of like as the opening general manager, and it was like we had a great team. We, you know, we worked quite hard together, but it was it, again in most hospitality things especially at the time, it was quite a party culture, like people drunk hard and it was like quite a, because everybody worked together, they, you know, everyone's on 60 hour weeks, like it was quite a, a usual for shifts where people just worked and then, you know, you start off with coffee in the daytime to keep you awake and then party starts to lag at night and, you know, shots behind the bar, like it was just like normal, it, it was normal and because you're in like a little echo chamber reinforcing that lifestyle, like for hospitality, this is just, especially five, ten years ago, this is how people worked and lived. Like you worked yourself to death and you drink and there's, you know, terrible alcohol and drug problems sort of is quite rife in my industry because people are just pushing themselves so hard um, and normalising it almost and almost sort of aggrandising it as well. It's like, oh, you know, we did this and I did a 15 hour, I did an 18 hour shift, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Um, I was 29, sort of, I've been doing it for quite a long time. Uh, and we've managed to, well, I've managed to sort of stay off the death from the first mess up. Um, Alex, my, well, now ex-partner, um, but she was having, yeah, we were going to have Elsie. And it just seemed like I didn't want to go into that chapter, maybe in the same lifestyle. So just decided to quit, which was nice, and welcome my daughter in into the world in like as a, as a unit mm. and actually be a bit more involved in the upbringing mm. i think also if my father wasn't um, that involved in my childhood it was sort of like you always want to do the opposite of what your parents did almost mm. or try to right their wrongs because mm. mm. you didn't see too much of your dad did you when you were growing up so so this was something no. that you could do mm-hmm. so so but then you did go back into the industry and so you joined the canteen group First is the general manager. And the idea there, and this is amazing given what you just said, you, they, the company was at a low point um, and your job was really to turn it all around, which you did very successfully quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it, it, I, again, I think I give very good interview when I want to. <laughs> so I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that, easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like I, I, can, I can wave my arms around and get quite enthusiastic about things. Um, and I think at the time, They'd, they'd opened the canteen as part of um, Hamilton House, so like a big cultural building in, in Bristol. Um, and the canteen did amazingly well. It was like a, you know, a 
student union read out effectively mm. but it was just busy all the time and you had all the big creative blocks above them um so your art studios and dance academies and etc etc in this massive building um and it just did it did so fantastically well for them they went and opened another one which was number one harborside that's back where you worked isn't it that's where you originally yeah worked, yeah back amazing. to where where i was seven years prior or so six years prior uh yeah see i think all that sort of worked out quite well in my favor um but i think for them at the time so they opened number one harborside and it was just doing really really badly like i think not that they they just assumed that they because the canteen was such a success that they had the Midas touch if you know what i mean so they can just open another one and it'll be fine and without maybe learning business sort of like how to actually run the business and how to actually do it and how to do you know the boring stuff mm. um which was effectively exactly what i did with my lifestyle beforehand it's like you have the idea and it's like oh it'll be great and it's just the the serious fundamentals of business which you don't always necessarily understand until you do it it was it was just like it was again it was the more sort of going back to basics and you know i changed our kitchen team changed the food um you know just tightened up the front of house made sure the rotaries were there make sure there was stock control like just looking after the pennies and, and, and the money and sort of making sure that it's and this was like something that I'd learned how not to do in the nightclub and then subsequently learned sort of working with other businesses who were successful. Mm. Um, so yeah, so at, at number one Harborside, um, I turned it around pretty quickly actually, like within a space of a few months it was going from quite loss making to quite profitable um, and then sort of just kept that going so I just sort of wrote them a new model for like this is the template this is how many staff you have on you know etc cetera, etc cetera. well it's incredible though isn't it all what you've been through you would never necessarily believe just put this then into action and then it then it works isn't it when you actually see how it does work that's incredible yeah yeah and i think once you understand the fundamentals of how it works like there's only a few levers you can pull anyway so it's like all your all your cost centers are pretty much it's mostly staff but then it's stock and you know you can increase your prices but then it might reduce how many you are how busy you are that one was quite easy i felt yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like i magic it was just like actually and you didn't do any turfing of the inside and make a festival or anything like that no 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 so i, I was sort of that that did really really well so after that a year i was appointed sort of operations manager of the business because also we had the um there was like a small market business that went out of number one harbour side which we sort of were growing and growing as well and that broke off into a separate business which was Bristol Markets in the end and then yeah what the managing director who was one of the founding members uh, decided that he had enough um, and sold his sold his shares um, and so myself and uh, another guy James bought into the company at that point um, so James became the managing director and I became the operations director and we were sort of us two that sort of ran the company effectively there were other directors um, because it started off with four guys um yeah we, we sort of started off again sort of in quite a flurry of activity of like right let's get this really tight and really good and let's beat down our supplier prices and get you know get the best electric price we can get and exit like really sort of put a lot of time and effort into getting it a really slick money making machine mm -hmm. um and we sort of we did a really good job um especially at the canteen like it, it became a bit of a cash cow it was just always busy all the time it was just a really nice model so we decided to open another one there was quite a lot of ideas going around um 
but my, my, my then partner's brother was the director of a wardrobe theatre, um, which was, well, now it's in the Old Market Assembly, but it was initially a small creative little theatre collective um, above a place called the White Bear in Bristol um, on St Michael's Hill. Uh, they had like a little 50-seater theatre they built in the back room of a pub, um, but they were really cool and did some really great stuff. Um, so I pitched an idea to the rest of the guys of doing a collaboration with them and sort of having uh, a theatre with what we do as well. Um, so yeah, so we made the Old Market Assembly in the end. We found a great place in Old Market. Yeah, it was it was quite quite the thing actually because we really took it from it was a bank beforehand, but in between in its times it was just before we took it on it was a it was a, it was a sex club mm. and that was quite fun going into there and sort of hanging back to bank <laughs> in like the bank that we turned into in the in the vault that we turned into our into our kitchen sort of finding sort of old sex songs and things and it's like yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure how long it's been there it's like it's been closed for a year and a half so like but yeah sort of then putting something in in that area was quite cool but yeah at the same time there were a few I don't know divisions let's say like there's a lot of tension of doing something like that and it cost mm. a lot of money as well like we had to put on like do a lot of work just putting in new floors and stripping the anything and the planning and it was like it was we were learning a lot as we went um, whilst trying to run the other business and pay for it all. Um, so it got, and then we sort of opened 2015. Um, it was, uh, the shows we did, especially the theatre shows, it was like a, a hundred and something seat theatre in the back, and it was great, and it was really, really busy, and we had loads of live music, and, but it was always, it was always a bit of a stretch to fill it, um, even though, so we were expecting, I think, maybe another canteen where it's like, you know, the place is great, it'll be full, but mm. Old Market at the time wasn't quite. I, I, I always thought that there, it was going to be the next Stokescroft in Bristol, but there will be, you know, all the creative people be in Stokescroft because it was really, really cheap. And as, you know, house prices have started to go up and new creators were squeezed out, I expected Old Market to be the next one. There was lots of, you know, industrial units there. There was not much space. There was enough chimney pots around to sort of also come and see it. So I expected it to be an absolute slam dunk, and it just wasn't. <laughs> and it was one of those ones where, I don't know if we didn't quite get the market research right, and we didn't quite work out exactly who the customers were, or maybe it wasn't quite pitched right. And it just took a bit of time maybe to find out who we were. But also, and, you know, we were vastly overspent on the, on the, on the bills, so it put a lot of strain on the company. But I think there was a few tensions within the company from just building that, and it was like, whoa, mm. as a director's group, we were a little bit uh, snapping at each other. Um, but from that, we, we built a, we had like a baking unit in there, and I got this guy, Sanjay, who used to, I worked with him back at the Spotted Cow years ago. He was like oh, 18 cool. to start with when he was 19, and then, you know, worked him, himself up into the chefing team there, and then left us to join Mark's Bakery, which was like, Bristol's first sourdough bread bakery, sort of back like sort of last 18 years ago now, maybe longer, uh, until when we opened the old market assembly, I sort of poached into Mark's to be our head baker in, in the assembly. Um, but the in the kitchen, we were effectively a bit too busy, and the bakery was in, in a way of a kept kitchen all the time. So effectively, we had to move the bakery out, um, and there was a unit next door that just came up. So uh, yeah, I sort of, we didn't have much money at the time, so I got given or agreed but I was given like a 10 grand um, budget to build a bakery next door uh, 
save, but it's, again, lots of like tangles you saw, like moving things and doing as much as possible. Um, so we built the old market assembly next door to the assembly, uh, and then yeah, that was like my first base kit. So we're gonna. So this will take us on to your next chapter. But just before we do, Gary, Sorry, so I've been talking non-stop. Not at all. It's, this <laughs> is this is a per, you're a perfect guest. You're a perfect guest. It's the guests who don't talk that are more tricky. So that's absolutely fine. So, but when you go back to that, that because often we talk about this that. Um, you know, you when you were working with the different directors, and obviously, like you say, you, you it all sounds idyllic, doesn't it? We we start this company, and we're gonna it's all you know we're gonna take over this company, and we're gonna create these amazing things. But then you work with different people, you're under pressure financially, you must be exhausted as well. It's quite it is a quite t- I mean, if someone's listening to this who's thinking of doing something like that, what would you say to them in terms of what did you learn from that? Like, what advice would would you give give having to work in a pressurized situation like that? Um, I don't know. It was one of those ones. I don't feel that I probably the best came out of me. <laughs> it was one of those ones. I think my uh, and I was definitely part of the problem. If you know what I mean. But it was we all had very entrenched opinions of what we wanted from it. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as part of a larger director group and a larger decision making group, there was. There's a lot of politics, so again, this is sort of like a study in how I wouldn't want to do it. So yeah, I, but I also feel that maybe that was quite a large group of decision makers, mm. which it, it's quite especially if they a lot of it would work very very well if everybody is on the same page. Or but I think sometimes, unless you know, obviously companies are run like this and you have large boards and things go to waste, and that's absolutely fine. But I feel that. We try to run ourselves like a bit more libertarian, and it didn't quite work. Wow. <laughs> it, it, it led to infighting more than it did, um, you know, informed decision making. Mm. But again, you learnt lessons from it, didn't you? You learnt lessons. So you, and also, I think you said you were like drinking too much. It was obviously just not a good environment. So, but you came out of it. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, like for me. It was. It was going to be. It was a good change to sort of. It's been quite a long time. It's not been a good environment. So I just wanted to uh, do something else. Um, and again, like I, I'd already had a second child, uh, Wilfred, at that point, And I was ooh, yeah, mid to late 30s and been doing it for a bit of time. And again, working in the bar culture, there's always readily available alcohol mm. and all the time because it's just that you know, people drink, you finish work, it's a drink and it's, it's always there. So it just felt... I didn't want to. I didn't want it to be a problem in my life. Mm. Whereas I could feel that maybe if I spent that too long in that environment, it might just be. Mm. It might become a problem for me. Mm. Um, but setting up the bakery, the, the, the small bakery beforehand, like I quite like that. I like the idea of bread. I like the idea of uh, the simplicity of sort of using your hands and, and making things again. Um, whereas it felt like my old job felt a bit too. It was too multifaceted, you know, there was too much going on, there was too many meetings about meetings about meetings, and I felt there was a little bit too much bureaucracy, and maybe a little bit too uh, people, some people justifying salaries, yeah. <laughs> almost, by talking rather than things yeah. getting done, and um, and again, I find, I think you find this in lots and lots of different fields, mm. um, whereas I like just to do things. Yeah. Um, and I also just like, I, I liked, it felt right for me to be, sort of go out on my own, almost. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, which is what you did. And because it's interesting, isn't it? Because you started off so creative, but then you went into this without a business degree or anything like that, but then you're running these businesses and that's sort of so far away from, from where you were at the beginning. But then this, so then you started the Bristol Loaf and this basically has brought everything that you love all together, hasn't it? And, and and you said you were desperate to get back to that small team and hands-on and that kind of environment. So you bought a coffee machine. Um, I know that that was quoted that you bought this uh, fabulous coffee machine, the best in the world. But anyway, but you, you and you had four bakers and you started like that. There was just six of you at the beginning. Yeah, so I, 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 I found what I thought to be a great little unit. Uh, it used to be a little banking den, but like it was really small um, in in an area um, Wakefield or St George in Bristol and it was like one of those sort of up and coming areas but a bit out in the city centre and a bit sort of not unloved but you knew yeah there's lots and lots of Victorian houses so you know that it will be up and coming mm. because the social demographics of Bristol are that there's not enough space for people population move out slowly so it was like oh I'm going to buy this little room effectively in the outskirts of Bristol um, and yeah, hopefully just open open a new bakery, like just open a bakery and a cafe and keep things nice and simple, but try and put <laughs> emphasis on just absolute quality and just trying to make the best delicious things we possibly can without any pretension. Just sort of use really, really good ingredients, but just make a product that I can believe in almost. Mm. And, you know, it, it's almost like this is my thing. What do I want to do? Like I felt a bit frustrated in my old job that my voice maybe wasn't heard or maybe some of my ideas weren't picked up and so it's like let's start again and make something that i believe in and something that i personally can say oh this is mine this is what i believe this is this is my business like this is great um so yeah that, that was the idea of the bristol loaf and again baking seemed the antithesis to the nighttime economy that we were doing you know your working day starts at six and 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 that like it's just it felt wholesome yeah and so i i hired well i i approached sanjay who was my head baker at the uh, the assembly so i took him with me um to be my head baker at, at the loaf um and we hired three more three more bakers but they all turned out to be absolute gems like and like now i, I try to hire people now like i hire a lot of people now and it's really hard to get good bakers who believe in like what you're saying ethos that care as much that have the same technical skill like sometimes it takes me months to find like one single person like i had a job the other day and like i had to get i had to tempt one person from london to come over and it took probably three months to get her to finish her job and come over another one from exeter and it's like but then somehow magically i managed to just have four really super talented people who would come and work for me straight away <laughs> it was great and yeah. so we managed to set up yeah set up with a really good team who sort of got it as well who sort of wanted to work in the way that i could see um that i wanted but to be yeah the sort of the sort of not too fancy do you know what i mean not mm. too much not too many sparkles not too many not too much style over substance because there's lots of like things with baking lots of foods as well where they put so much effort into putting different layers and the genre here and the, uh, the glaze on this and it looks fantastic and it tastes like shit quite frankly yeah. <laughs> or like loads of sculptural things with buttercream but you know it really just tastes of buttercream it's just horrible it's yeah. really sweet 
and it's like it's just a way of baking that is like it's it's good and it's rustic and it's natural and there's no artificial anything is and it's all seasonal as well which is really important to me and as local as course as possible but like how to be the best we possibly can be without being pretentious yes sorry I draw some tangents not at all not at all it's fascinating especially like when my husband and I we go out and sometimes we just crave like there's all these you know pig's heads and things like that and I'm not saying that people don't enjoy that but sometimes you just want to have we're very plain and just want to have like a even a chicken coco van that's as fancy as I get but sometimes yeah, you yeah. just you just want that I stuff I love a coco van oh yeah <laughs> oh good brilliant. yeah oh but good yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes me feel better that makes me feel better so but so but the thing is Gary you wanted to just have this very sort of small and go back to the basics but it didn't quite work like that because it was really successful and you very quickly expanded yeah I I think I have these two competing narratives in me that I get I get quite bored quite quickly as well, and so it's like oh I can do this and then this and this and so <laughs> as opposed to like oh wouldn't it be nice if it was simple but then I'm not actually very good at simple and my my creative mind keeps on running ahead of anything else um, so yeah yeah so we got too busy really um, and then luckily the, the unit next door like I, I got on really well with the landlord and he was developing the next cell I was like oh I'll take it. So he let us, so we sort of effectively cut a big hole in the wall between my current bakery and the unit next door. Um, and then I sort of moved half of my bakery into the back bit. So I took like my pastry and my sweet department and like a bit of my savoury department and moved it into the back and put a few more seats in the front. And I was like, oh, look, I'm just based two boxes. Great. And then that sort of worked for a little bit and it was great. And but we were really busy and it's oh god you know you, you create more space which means you have more customers which means you need to do more work which means you need more space so we ended up sort of doing a deal with the landlord of the new unit that we will sort of you know alongside him we'll build effectively a big bakery in the back garden so that's what we did um and then again you know we just ran out of space so we kept on we kept on really um so yeah that's when we decided to do our first our first unit out of out of there so we opened our bedminster unit which is like our flagship now um because mm. it's massive mm. it's lovely mm, it um, yeah so we, we grew again and opened that one um that one was a, was a bit of a again it's like again i'm not sure if i'm supposed to be giving business advice because what i did was terrible business well this is <laughs> it was we're more like from i it. saw something and it was like i, I I get quite excited by you know other people look on social media and check their like I personally I look at like units and things like oh this will be great I can build this into something you know um, but I found this one place and it was beautiful like it was just this it was a mm, 1920s 1930s so it was quite old um, but it used to be like a car accessory warehouse effectively but it was just this great big 500,000 square foot empty shell with some of the industrial stuff still there so really high ceilings great big concrete pillars going up to and that was it and like when i when i saw it it was just like oh that's perfect i could just see what it could be it could be stunning with the right treatment um and i just had to do something with it and it was just like oh i, I really need to do this somehow um yeah this is what i turned into my Bedminster one in the end but at the time like I didn't have the money to do it at all and 
it was if it was too big for us for like the next step from going from like this small little team to like oh, oh bit bigger bit bigger mm. and then this next one was like leap like a massive leap and i didn't have enough money for it and so like the idea i came up with like wouldn't it be great if we collaborated with other small other small sort of um independent providers and like clubbed together and made it into a oh like a organic sort of ethical supermarket you know you can come in and get your bread and we based around my bakery with a cafe area so i spoke to a local greengrocers called hugo's who uh, was looking for another one and then we spoke to another company called zero green who were bristol's first um they were like first sort of reusable groceries um so they were going to take part of the unit we sort of managed to cobble together a bit of that with some crowdfunding and i got a bit of money um, and then I managed to get a, like at the time it was just like, I've got, like, it was still, the building was so freaking massive compared to the amount of money I had, but I was still sort of like just trying to work out any way of getting something to fund it. Um, but I, I applied for some grants, so we managed to, uh, do some very, very creative writing. Um, and I, I got awarded, a, it was like an EU growth grant from, um, it was overseen by Bristol University, so UE. Uh, so yeah, so I managed to get that, which was freaking amazing. Um, so they gave us like an extra 40 grand for uni with a little bit of money I had saved back that I could go to a, a bank and I could be like, okay, I've got this great thing. I've got a little bit of money crowd surfed. I've got this. How much money can I borrow off you? They're like, oh, okay, you've got this pot. And so it was based on the back of this grant. I managed to then get more money from the bank. Um, and it sort of started to snowball that like literally starting from like i had a good business i was profitable i was growing but you know i ended up spending well not far off half a million pounds on every wow. stuff and i probably started with about 40 grand in my bank wow it, but it was more like it was so beautiful that mm. i had to do it like some of that i overspent because covid <laughs> that mm. happened in the middle of like we were really exposed and I had bank loans and I was like oh okay and I took on more bank loans to try and finish it as it was going and then uh, COVID happened um, the first wave hit us in March 2020 and I was supposed to be opening in May 2020 so I had to like shut everything down and oh my gosh. Well, all of that um, that was quite stressful because my repayments were coming back at that point um, so that was awful actually but we managed to again turn it into a positive and launched like an online deli company so like we we because we couldn't have anyone inside Devon, the redfield one in so the staff who needed who wanted for any work we used them to get them furloughed so they got furloughed and then we had a small team and then we started doing sort of we had delivery drivers and infrastructure to do deliveries anyway so we started doing home deliveries and then we took on like i realized there was a lot of other companies who didn't necessarily uh, they'd lost their route to market people like smaller companies who did you know markets and things like that like mm. nice interesting bristol-based ones so we're like okay well you know what drop your stuff off to us we can do that we've got the platform so we started adding more people to to my thing uh to our deliveries and they went really well it's like especially in the first wave like no one was going out the house like you couldn't get a avocado delivery for love nor money so we managed to like really 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 quickly innovate of like you know it was like just taking out massive loans by companies lost 80 percent of its turnover and we were like oh my god what are we going to do now we're bankrupt in two months at this rate mm -hmm. so when you've got this 
pressure on you mm. as opposed to be like oh no I hope it gets better it was more like fuck like literally I can't not do something so yeah we ended up sort of doing I don't want to say oh we did all right out of COVID because that's horrible but it's more we managed to not be hit too badly and mm. then sort of work out a, a, you know on the hoof a new business model that worked for covid if you know what i mean Mm-mm-mm. so yeah that perhaps you wouldn't have done and can i just ask you gary how, i mean how do you cope with that with that kind of pressure because lots of people say do you know what especially after what you've been through before you're like hang on i've just had enough of this but how do you cope with it i mean do you do you have sleepless nights can oh, you get yeah, into the no. can you get into the mind <laughs> can you get into the no, mindset no. and think okay right one day at a time and you just have great self-belief um i have sleepless nights i've never been a great sleeper anyway so like that's fine once you've had kids you don't expect like sleep as a bonus <laughs> almost you're like oh great i have five hours perfect yeah. um so it's sort of yeah i do i do get quite tense like you know you can feel it like oh building up in you but then at the same time i think my level for i think when you really do get very like when things really have to be done I get a clarity almost it's like okay and so I'm, I, I have an ability to break things down to like quite logical choices it's like okay this is this is a situation what you know and you work out a b c you know you can just work that rather than get to like oh no this is happening or it's mm. just you know I'm lucky in that sense that I I, I can take the emotion out of all decisions Mm. and i suppose everything that you, everything that you've been through even going back to with your nightclub even that you'd, you've learned so much like you say sometimes how not to do it perhaps this then all came together to how you could do it because also so you've got the lovely cheesemongers with you yeah yeah all that happened sorry i went off on a, on a bit of a tangent it was another of those what can we do you know why did you lemon can we make lemon lemonade sort of thing it was when we were building <clears throat> the bedminster one and that was the one where we everything was going like terribly but we had to open uh, and we I managed to lag a bit more money from somewhere just to get open and then zero green who was supposed to be coming in with us they pulled out so that was like a very large unit the back of my unit that was uh, empty um, um, so we sort of quite on the hoof really I decided to invent a new company uh, so I invented a natural wine company because it's something I was always really interested in um and i natural wine so it's like you know organic but also there's no sulfates there's also farming procedures that are a lot more in tune with nature as opposed to just spraying a bucket of everything and juicing it and adding sugar and some chemicals and then selling it cheaply it's sort of a, a different way of doing it so uh yeah i just decided like oh okay well i've got nothing to go in so we invented this new wine company in the space of like a week um to go in and i managed again like complete luck managed to include some people who like someone i've worked with before in the past who was my who introduced me to natural wine it was a rep in his own company but he was uh his own company it didn't work out for him in the end he decided to step away from it and be trained to do counseling and therapy but he had looking for like a little bit a couple of days a week so he sort of joined us to help us with that and like his protege charlie like joined joined us as like our manager of the thing as well so i suddenly had two great people and so we built this lovely wine emporium at the back um but in part of it as well 
um, I thought it would be great to have wine and cheese. So we I spoke to another lo- local company called Two Belly. We've got a great shop on White Ladies Road mm. and to see if they want to rent a little cheese counter for me. So, um, yeah, that was, again, it was just like we just made it up on the hoof because we had to. That's amazing, though, because what I mean, the for, for those listening, you know, a lot of people do know it's so popular in Bristol. But for those who don't live in Bristol, it is an amazing space. And it's and it's it's like a community space, really, isn't it? It's more than it's it, and it's amazing how that has all come. I thought that you had planned that. The fact that you're saying that it's all come together like that. That's just, ama- <laughs> no, it's just, just amazing. On the hoof, like, was like, oh, we could do this. And then, you know, like, we just. Like we would walk around the place and do different drawings and different things, and then it was almost until near the end of it where I got some designers involved. Like a lot of the first half, we were drawing on bits of paper <laughs> and directing people. Um, but yeah, it was by the end. Like once it all come together, I got these great designers involved called um, Binks Wharf. Um, but again, like the creative process with them was really it. It was great actually because. I can sort of, I can see things in my mind quite well and I can like, oh, I can shift that plant pot up by two foot and see how it feels and I can think about it and it works perfectly well. But it, it's nice to work with people who you could literally say, oh, move that plant pot two meters and then they'll do it on this. And it's like, oh, how does that work? Oh, they've got these great ideas. And it's like, it felt really collaborative. Mm. So like for the designs in the Bevency one, like once we opened it, it was great, but we actually... Uh, we won, or they won, for their designs. Our designs. Um, <laughs> they won the National Design Award, which was nice, in the London Design That's Awards. That's amazing. Um, we got entered into the international one as well. We got wow. shortlisted with, like, in the top five best hospitality places to open in 2020 in the whole of Europe, which is nice. Or, like, the, the best yeah, designs. Amazing, yeah, it really is amazing. And then you've also gone into the Bristol Beacon. Yeah, I think by that point we were on like a oh, creative, like, ah, it's got to do this stuff, creative sort of role. Um, and because, yeah, the Bevenston one, as soon as we opened, it was just fantastic. People were queuing around the corners. Mm. And I think we opened perfectly within between lockdowns as well. So people have been cooped up for so long. And then we opened and we were like one of the first big openings in Bristol after lockdown. So people were like, new stuff. And just like, oh, I'm allowed out of my house. This is fantastic. So it was sort of opened with real, you know, fanfare, but also just queuing around the corner all the time. And it was just like, it was great, literally, to open a new business and have queues all day, every day. But so, yeah, we opened the Bristol Beacon. I think, again, it was more just because of the pressure of opening Bedminster and COVID, maybe also a few years before as well, just constantly opening. But I was just like, oh. Okay, I'm, oh, what do I do now? And I'm going to do them. So I think maybe I got so used to the the pressure of doing stuff. Um, we, yeah, so the Bristol Beacon, um, again, for people who don't know, it's it's the new name for what used to be the Colston Hall in Bristol, but it's now called the Bristol Beacon. Uh, it's been rebranded um, for obvious reasons. It's sort of the southwest, sort of one of the southwest sort of premier music sort of and cultural sort of um, places. Uh, so, in normal times, they have well, they have three great big sort of um, Victorian music halls, and like this new great big foyer, sort of five-story foyer building where they have gigs on different floors and stuff. And it's really cool. Um, but when you first walk in onto the ground floor, there was this sort of 
Cafe bar area. Um, and it was always shit. <laughs> like, I couldn't work out why it was so bad. And it was just in this great big lovely cultural place right in the centre of Bristol. Like, I really respect what they do, the Bristol Music Trust, for like, their cultural offerings and like what they do for, you know, families. And it's like everything. It's like, it's great. They put on so many great shows, so many free things as well. It's, it's, it's amazing. And they get brilliant musicians to come down and play. The, the whole building, is, they, they closed in 2018. They had like a great big um, lottery money with it also, pension money and various other different ways. So they were sort of, and they still are, in the middle of doing this amazing refurb of the old buildings. And so with COVID as well, they've been pretty much closed as a building for a couple of years. Um, so I just contacted them, just to, to send them an email and said, like, oh, hi, you know, I've, I've always wondered what, what, what's going on with that, the bar sort of cafe area downstairs. Like, it might be interesting in doing something with you guys if you want someone to go in when, when you open. Um, yeah, it was just like a, we were all like, oh, wonder what happened there. It could be really good sort of feeling. Uh, but yeah, they got back to me. Um, and the, well, because of, again, COVID and various other things, the, their opening day for the main main part of the building was being pushed back and pushed back. So it's now going to be 23. Um, but they got back to me and said, like, you know, they're opening the main thing 23, but they're reopening the sort of the big, the main foyer where this place is. Uh, imminently and yeah so it's like yeah great let's have a chat so yeah we just went in and again it was sealed quite quickly I was like yeah and you're not oh, you're right. not frightened of asking either I mean that's because that's such a big part of Bristol that's huge and some might say oh you know it's just a, there you are you're now in one of the biggest flagship music venues in the southwest yeah yeah we are and it, it was more like I was just like oh well, I've been there before and it's a bit rubbish and it's closed now and uh, oh, maybe I can have it and it was literally like that. So I just pinged an email, tried to find who the right person was, who got to the right person. And it literally was, they, you know, we emailed a couple of times, uh, you know, sent them some links to what we were doing. It's interesting now because now we're quite established. Like, it doesn't feel like as much of a brag. It's not like, oh, I, yeah, no, it, it didn't feel like that first nightclub when I was convincing people that I could, I promise you I can run it. Like, obviously I couldn't, <laughs> but at the time it was, that was like a sell a sales job and it still feels like now but now we're established oh it's amazing i've been there it's amazing how many people now work with you uh 100 i think wow gary so you from that time you were gonna have a small bakery and now you've got 100 staff that's yeah, that's know. pretty big and that took about four years to happen which is a bit like annoying really because i never let myself stop yeah, it's amazing. And I definitely see, and I'm sure listeners listening, that boy who was at school who, who you know, couldn't always concentrate or got, you know, bored easily if he didn't like it. it I can't, you can see how this is coming through now. You can, I think you're going <laughs> to have bit, yeah, a bit of a yeah, tough, yeah. you're going to have a tough, tough job with your daughter there, Gary. Yeah, I think definitely I'd probably welcome my own back on that one. Um, I can at least appreciate what my mother went through. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So, I mean, I, I dare ask, but to move on to the do, to be continued, what do you want to do next? Um, we are in the middle of, well, I'm in the middle of, I'm just about to extend my original run again, uh, the original Redfield run, um, with the, we've taken on the unit next door again, um, just because it was coming up. Um, so we're now, I'm going to put a little bit of effort this year into 
extending native wine, native vine, which was the company we had made in the space of a week. Um, but now we're trying to turn into a really, really good company. So um, yeah, we're turning the unit next door to this into like a, a really beautiful cavernous wine bar, effectively, with these lovely wine sort of shelves going off, and this great big banquet table in the middle, doing small plates and wine in the evening in this Moses Bill for my for Redfield um, Cafe in the daytime. So that will keep me occupied for the next three, four months. Um, we are just about to do a, like a, a website launch of the native vine. Um, so all of the wines that we have available are going to be available nationwide now. So they'll be packaged up and sent to your door. Um, so yeah, it's been about six months coming actually we've been designing this, maybe even nine months. It's been a really long time coming, but I, we think that our website is absolutely banging now and hopefully the conversion rates people pop on your website to actually buy something will be heightened quite a lot. So that's coming too. Um, I think that's this year done. I'm getting tired now. So. Yeah, uh, I bet. Yeah, and then we've had started conversations with some another developer uh, for our first non-Bristol loaf. So our first loaf out of Bristol. Uh, so this is going to be for I found the beautiful building and I felt like I felt in when I saw the Bedminster one for the first time. Uh, it's beautiful. It's just the most stunning thing I've ever seen. So I'm hoping that's going to come off. Um, this amazing 18th century listed church, which is with 60 foot high ceilings, and it would just be amazing if I could put a bakery in there. Um, so I'm hoping, I'm not going to say which town it's in yet. No. <laughs> because it no, might not come off. But um, we're, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing head to terms with the developer at the moment. So that will be next year. Next year's project lined up. So I think that might be uh, that's the foreseeable future. But I think I think that's enough, Gary. I think that's enough. <laughs> that's for enough. Now. That, you know, as I said, you do something. It's like oh, I've done it now. Yeah, I, w I will have to get you back on because who knows where this is going to go? Because it's going to go. Um, far. before we go into your acknowledgements, just two questions: Do you actually do you bake yourself? Um, I can bake, <laughs> but no, I don't. It's one of those ones where um, like a chef. But they're very, they are transferable skills, but it's very, very different. Chefing's about, bow, bow, you know, you can, if you mess something up, I can actually put a little bit of salt, a bit of sugar, a bit of cream, put a bit more butter in and it's fine. But whereas baking's a lot slower and more meticulous and, um, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of skill base. Effectively, if you mess something up, you've got loads of days until you bake out the oven and then it's wrong. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it probably fits my personality type. And the times I have filled in, I feel like my staff are like, get out of the kitchen, Gary. Yeah, clear off. <laughs> and what is your favourite cake? Oh, I don't know. I'm actually more of a savoury person. Like, naturally, I like small things in, like, really small little bits and I can taste them. But, like, if I eat the whole thing, I'm a bit like, ooh. But whereas you give me something cheesy, then I will gorge myself. <laughs> um, but my favourite cake, I... amazing salted caramel brownie it's really simple like you know but it's so good you know what i mean it's like a little spare of that it still still gets me um simple taste how about yours what, what's your favorite cake well i was just going to say i'd be happy with that a cocoa van followed by one of your salted brownies that's perfect for me yeah <laughs> And the, and the native wine. I like the sound of that. that. That sounds that sounds brilliant. So moving on, your acknowledgements. Who would you like to thank who have helped you along the way? Um, 
I said for me it's mostly it's my it's it's my Bristol lifestyle book for in past and present because it really has been like I've managed to create a like a real team of people like like-minded passionate people who like love what they do and it's quite it's really nice and really inspiring to work with people like that but even like if you're if they're one of the chefs like especially my chefing team they they are really heavily into their fermentation at the moment and they're making their own kojis and then they're inoculating they're making their own charcuterie and like every single element has been made themselves but they're so passionate and dedicated to it and then they, that really feeds off itself and the same with like my bread team like we're making really good connections with local farms and getting in different grain and then we're milling it ourselves to try and put some of that into our recipes and and it's like and again with my like my cake team like our all my pastry team they're all really it's like a big bunch of geeks who absolutely love their one little department and they get really like really involved and like happy in it um and like all of them are much more skilled than i am in all of their departments but it's like it's somehow yeah i, I just feel really lucky that i've managed to make a culture where like that's celebrated and then it almost it takes care of itself then because then other people see that like you know this is a really happy little team who are doing all these cool stuff and then they want to come and join it and so it's sort of like yeah so it's almost it's, it's my massive stroke of luck is hiring the right four or five people at the start to have created something that is good and then to be able and then people want to be part of that gang you know um so yeah it's just like it's, it's my my whole team life of every single thing and still being there and doing what they do because like they're great uh and they're all really talented they sound it i don't think it's luck though i think it was everything that you've learned and you you could spot what would what would work but and you also said as well about the gentleman who you worked with in that original kitchen yeah yeah farrow was um he was yeah so the, the head chef who sort of took me under his wing um when i was back in university and it, it was, he was almost quite paternal, actually. He, he, he like taking me under his wing, and he quite enjoyed showing me, like all the things that he'd learned, and like getting me to taste, like these, the things that I'd never tasted before. Like I was a vegetarian, actually, from the ages of four to the age of twenty. So, like, I'd never tasted a steak in my life, or a bit of fish, or anything. And you know, but when I decided to go off vegetarianism, he was like, you know, cooking me these amazing T-bones, or like showing me this completely different way to marinate a, a chicken breast or like just things i'd never seen in my life and it's like wow food cannot you know i was brought up a vegetarian in the 80s like food was very <laughs> it wasn't tasty <laughs> uh, so it's like oh my god this could be oh i could eat this oh this is fantastic you know it was like just different ways of cooking and like it seemed for the first time like a viable <sighs> career you know it's like you could be it's like, oh i could actually do this Mm, mm, that's amazing it really is so so just to finish off um and because also gary you've had so many different chapters talk about next chapters throughout it all there's been so so many and actually i just think it still is so fascinating this um but you basically going back to where you started and your lovely where you roamed around the countryside but you loved architecture then you loved your food you loved your cooking you learned so much you had your nightclub but everything you've done and then you sort of just realize what you did like doing what you didn't like doing it sounds like now you've brought it all together and the art side of things as well you and the architecture you're just the design you're doing it so you've managed to just bring it all together 
What would you say to somebody now who, going back to how you were at school, even if they're now in their 30s or 40s and are still not quite sure what they really want to do, what would be your advice to them? Where should they begin? Oh, God. That's a big question, I know. Just like, what what interests you? What excited is, is like the main thing. It's like, for me, it's it's mostly food. In your working life especially, it's it's a really long part of the day. It's like, it's what, and, you know, especially in our culture, we meet people and they're like, you know, what do you do? It's ingrained that our work is part of our personality. It's part of, um, you might as well do something that you actually enjoy, that you believe in, but there's no there's no secrets here. There's, there's no reason why you can't find people who are doing what you want to do or other people in the field. And, you know, I'm not saying bombard people because other people are busy, but you can ask them, Know, really respectful like questions you can send people emails you know you can approach people and be like oh hi you know i really like what you do and just ask them questions like learn off of other people yeah so it's like learn learn off of everyone um yeah, there's definitely no no shame in not knowing and asking people questions about how they do what they do um and as much as anything else even if you don't learn much off of them you'll have really good links in that community it's like people will remember it and it's a good way of meeting other people and other like-minded people you might collaborate in the future or or it might just be nice to know someone else who does something quite similar and like you say as well if you feel completely overwhelmed to break it down into chunks yeah definitely it's um it's like every single task like from from the outside and it's like okay i'm going to open for me it's like open a new venue and start a new business but it might be a different thing for them but the process is still the same it is take every single task down into small achievable tasks into different jobs that have to be done on different days and so if it is you know i said for me it was okay we need to take on a venue what do we need to do we need carpenters woodworkers <clears throat> plumbers electricians you know etc 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 and so you just do one of them every single day you do that task and then you go on to the next task and then the next task and it's sort of it's just a really nice, simple, achievable way of not overwhelming yourself as well. It's like, as long as you have a vision of exactly what needs to be done and you're, you're ticking it off. Yeah, it's just a good way of constantly getting forward momentum without becoming overwhelmed. Um, even when it seems quite big and quite scary. Uh, it isn't. It's just a lot more small daily tasks put together in the same place. Wow. Well, Gary, you answered my email. Thank you so much. Lots of people wanted to hear your story. And thank you so much for sharing it and being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter. Oh, no worries. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. So there you are. What did you think of that? Oh, I learned so much, but I love that the most. Break it down into little steps and then the task does not seem so huge after all. And there's no shame in not knowing. Just ask. It's what everyone has to do. Now, if you don't live in Bristol, then I do apologise for tempting you with the Bristol Loaves Delights, but have a look at their website at least, just in case you come to visit. The details are in the show notes. Now, to keep up to date with me, and I would love that, you can find me at elliebarkerwrites.com. You're listening to the next chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. Remember, break it all down into little tasks, and then it won't seem so scary. And eat some delicious cake. Speak soon.